0: Uh, she's at home with our sick son, and uh, when it comes to mother Day, Mother's Day and uh, what you'd want to do on Mother's Day, probably not uh, stay with a sick son who's been thrown up a lot. Uh, so I want to say, Jill, I love you. I thank you for being such a great mom, and uh, I couldn't handpick a better mother for my children than you. And so, hello, I love you. you. <laughs> okay. All right, now I want you to imagine that you're on a team. You're on a team, but this just isn't any team, okay? This is a team that's going to represent the United States of America. The year is 1980. It's the 13th Winter Olympics, and it's being held in Lake Placid, New York. And you're on this team, okay? Of all the people that could have been chosen, you're on this team of 26, okay? It's going to be trimmed down to 20 by the time the games actually start. So for the past six months, you've been training. Blood, sweat, tears. You've been playing uh, exhibition games to get ready for this. After one of the uh, exhibition games, you don't play very well, and the coach makes you skate. Killers after killer after killer. He promises you one thing. We may not be the best team in Lake Placid, but we'll be the best conditioned team. And so for six months, he's trying to get you in the best shape of your life so that you will perform when it comes game time. So for six months, you've been doing this. One month before the Olympics are about to start, he brings in another player. Right when you thought it was gonna be trimmed from 21 to 20, It goes back from 21 to 22 and now two more people have to get taken off this roster before the games can actually start. How would you respond to that? For the past six months, you've been busting yourself to try and get in shape to make this team so you can represent the United States in the Winter Olympics. How would you respond to that? How would you respond to the coach? Well, we're gonna take a look at a clip from Miracle right now and see how four of those players responded to just that situation. I want you to imagine that you're part of a different family and all you've known about this family and you've been told by your father by your grandparents by your great-grandparents is that just like this Olympic hockey team it involves a certain number of people there's only certain people that can fit within this family and this family's name is Israel You were always told as a kid growing up that you were a chosen people, that you were set apart from other nations, that you were special. For thousands of years, you approached God in a certain way. And there were three... Is everybody okay back there? There were three ways, primarily, that you were told to approach God. One, be born within this family. Be born a Jew. The second way was to be circumcised. As a baby, be circumcised. And the third way was to follow the law of Moses. That's what, those were the parameters of your family. And like the Olympic hockey team, you didn't want anybody else to be on that, in that family. You're in this together, you're a team. And so the question is how would you respond? When someone comes and tells you that those three things that you're living by, being born a Jew, being circumcised and living by the law of Moses, how would you respond if somebody came and said, no, that's not what it's all about? What would your response be to them? Basically, they're telling you the foundation of your life is wrong. We're in the middle of a series called The Church on Fire, a study of the Acts of the Apostles, Last week I talked about Acts eight being uh, kind of the vision for the whole book. eight talks about us being witnesses, or in that time the apostles being witnesses, having been given the Holy Spirit so they can go out and tell people about Jesus. And we looked at Acts 9.35, which talks about one of these guys, the apostle named Paul, and he's been given this job description to go out to a certain group of people, the Gentiles, those who aren't Jewish, and tell them that there's a place for them within God's family. And last week we also looked at Paul's interaction with the leaders. He's just getting done with his third missionary journey. He's gone out once, he's gone out twice, he's gone out a third time, and he ended that trip in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit has warned him that two things, prison, and hardships are facing him. And we said, why? Why are prison and hardships are facing him? Because the reason he went to Jerusalem was to give gifts. He wanted to bless these people. And so why would prison and hardships be facing him? That's what we're going to look at this week. We'll begin in Acts 21, verses 27 through 29. It's uh, on your insert. It's you can find it in the Bible, a pew Bible. It'll be on the screen. When the seven days were nearly over, that seven days was the, the leaders of the church said, this is what we're going to do, Paul. The Jews have heard you're going to come. We've got to do something to appease them because you're in hot water, buddy. You've been teaching some things that they don't agree with, they don't understand, and you're in hot water. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to follow some things prescribed in the law of Moses, and they're going to be cool with you. So we're coming to the end of that seven-day ritual. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. So for him to bring a Greek into the temple would be not good. It would defile the temple. And so they're getting pretty ornery. But what we need to look at right now is that this isn't his first interaction with these Jews from the province of Asia. In fact, he has a long history, stretching over many years, up to a decade long, of having interactions and conflict with these people. And we're going to go Jumping through them right now. I listed the verses there. You're going to have to listen carefully. We begin in Acts 13, 45, almost a decade ago. Okay? Paul is going out in his first journey. We're at the end of his third. He's back in his first journey, and it reads this way in Acts 13, verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. They began to contradict what Paul was saying. Acts 14, 2. The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. That's his traveling companions. Acts 14, 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the two places he had just been. These Jews follow him to the next city, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Acts 17:5. Many years later, but the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Acts 17.13 just continues. Paul has many interactions, many conflicts with these people. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up against Paul. Acts 18.6, started to do a laundry list, but just to get a feel for what he's been going through with this group of people. Acts 18.6, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul was going to the synagogues, telling the Jews about this guy named Jesus. People, some people agreed with him, were persuaded to follow Christ, Others not. And he said, this is, this is it. I'm going to go start primarily to the Gentiles and spend my time talking to them. Acts 19.9, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. In the public forums, publicly maligned what Paul was doing. Contradicted him. Hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship. Paul faced. Why? Why did he do it? Why did he continually go from city to city being met with the same opposition? What did it mean to Paul? Excuse me. What did it mean for those people in our current passage? It says that this man, Paul, is teaching against the people, against the law, against this holy place, the temple. What did that mean? We're not quite sure. Theologians right now debate, what is Paul's view of the law? Was he for the law? Was he against the law? Did he see its role? How, what does that mean? And so we can't be sure if what they say, him maligning the, the people and the way and the temple of the law, we're not going to have time to debate all that because that's what theologians discuss. But I want to give you two main reasons that Paul has offended these people. What has he said that has offended these people that have got them going from city to city to city, beating him, getting him expelled out of the synagogue? Why are they doing that? Two main reasons. The first, Paul has gone to great lengths to show them that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Christ. He's gone to great lengths over and over again, synagogue to synagogue, showing them from their own Bible, the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Christ. For us, we sing a song, Who's this king of glory? His name's Jesus. But for them, it wasn't so clear. They didn't know. They didn't know that Jesus was the Christ, the, the anointed one, the one who was to come, the, the king of glory. They missed that. And Paul's gone to great lengths to show them that Jesus was this guy, this special one who was going to come. And why did that rock the foundations? With the three pillars, what they have? Be born into our family. One of the traditions we have is that we'll circumcise you after you're, when you're a baby. And then you're going to follow the law of Moses. That's what it means to be a part of our family. And Paul's just turning it all upside down and saying, this Jesus guy, he's the key to getting in the family in the first place. And so you can see how it would just rock their world. Just turn them upside down. Some people were persuaded, and some not. but he's gone great lengths to show that Jesus was a Christ. Let me just give you a couple here. Acts 13:38. Now listen to this, in the, in, the, in the mindset of somebody who is a, a Jew and believing strongly in the law of Moses, he says this: "Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You could not be freed. There was a law that you were living by. But Jesus has come and he's done something that law couldn't do. Can you imagine your world being rocked? Acts 18.5, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. One more, Acts 18, 28. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. That's the first thing. Rocking their world, turning it upside down. What they believed once about being in this family now becomes, it's not those three pillars, but it's through Jesus. Second thing, second reason why he's offended a large number of people. He's gone to great lengths to show them that the Gentiles are a part of this plan. The Gentiles. To a Jew that's unheard of. They had come to believe that this was an exclusive group, just like the hockey team said, hey, we're a family. It's us. This is it. No more additions. And now he's coming, and he's trying to tell them, no, 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 this just isn't about you. You're a chosen people, yes. But God's plan is much greater. The family is much bigger than you guys are making it out to be. God, God's plan wants to include everybody. Listen to what he says in Acts 13, verses 46 through 48. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. They were called to speak to the Jews. But since you guys rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth, to everybody. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. You know, for thousands of years, they, they could see Israel was, was, was described as a holy people, as a, as a nation set apart, dearly loved by God. And then all of a sudden, Paul comes and says, hey, you guys too, you're dearly loved. You're chosen by God. And it says, they were glad. <laughs> it's like the understatement, you know, understatement of the century. But Paul is rocking their world. He's turning it upside down. What they understood to be their foundation has now been usurped by Christ. Here they offered sins, offered sacrifice for sin over and over and over and over. Then here, one sacrifice, one perfect sacrifice, Jesus. And then it says he sat down because the work was finished. It was done. And that's how you're part of this family. And then the other piece. Here they understood it. It's just us. Nobody else. We don't want anybody else on this team. And Paul comes and says, no, no, no. You've got to open that gate wide because God wants all people to come. He doesn't want anybody to not be a part of his family. Continuing on, Acts 21, verses 30 through 36. 36. The whole city was aroused. These Jews tried to stir up the crowds. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in in an uproar. At once he took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. So the Roman commander, the Romans are in, in, in charge of this entire t- territory, and the big thing they want is peace. Anything that rocks the boat, we want it dealt with immediately. You can serve whatever God, worship whatever God you want to, but when there's not peace, that's when we're going to come and confront you. And that's what happened here. They hear that there's no peace. The Roman commander and his people come down trying to establish it. And the funny thing to me, at least, is he arrests Paul. Like in high school, when when we would see like somebody beating somebody else, it's not the guy on the ground that you take to the office. It's the guy that's pummeling him on top of him, right? But for some reason they come and they grab Paul and they arrest him. But as the story goes on, it transitions from, you know, arresting him to actually protecting him from the crowd. You see that? First, they they arrest him and say, this guy is the troublemaker. And then all of a sudden, the crowds are just ready to tear into him. And the commander and his people end up protecting him. And they can't get at who this guy is. We talked a little bit about it last week. Some people say one thing. Some other people say, this is who Paul is. And as we looked at, his philosophy of ministry many times was, Well, it depends who I'm with. If I'm with Jewish brothers, I'm going to act Jewish. If they have issues with the law, I'm going to go with them on that. It's important for me to be with them there. But then, when he was hanging out with Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who didn't follow the law, he was cool not following the law. Because what was most important to him? Jesus. The Holy Spirit. And this, this whole piece is going to lead on to next week. This crowd is in an uproar. The Roman commander has him arrested, doesn't know what to do with him. And next week, Paul's going to have a chance to address the crowds. You know, it's kind of funny that he gets one more chance to address these people, given the fact that he's been in city, after city, after city with them, and not much has changed. But he's going to have one more crack at it next week. But I think there's two main lessons that Paul teaches us through this. Not just this week, but through those many hardships that he's faced. First one. Endure hardships in order to tell people about Jesus. Endure hardships so that you can tell people about Jesus. Don't endure hardships just to endure hardships and say that you endured hardships. I don't feel like that's what the passage is calling us to. Endure hardships so that you can tell other people about Jesus. And the second one, endure hardships in order to tell people that there's a place for them within God's family. God's family now would be described as the church. And many people that you know that are in your spheres of influence are opposed to anything that the church has to offer. But yet we have this message, this inclusive message that all who desire can be a part of this. This is not an exclusive group for people that grew up in a Christian home or grew up in a church-going home. Your life may be messed up, but this is a place for you. But the fact is is that many times the conversations don't go that way. Maybe you've had those kind of conversations where you invite somebody to come to Hope or to come to church, to listen to a tape, to read a book, And they don't respond, like Carrie did. Are you in those times ready to endure hardship, endure criticism, endure uh, anything in your reputation changing that once they understood you to be this kind of person, but then you threw out that Jesus card that you're a follower of Christ. And that changes, that can change everything. Their perception of you can change. Are you in those times willing to endure hardship for the name of Jesus And so that people can hear about his family, hear about his church. And Hope Community Church is just one representation of God's big church. There are other great churches out there. They don't have to be a part of this church, but be willing to invite them to be part of his family. Endure hardships for two reasons, to tell people about Jesus and to tell people about his family. And now I want to ask you very specifically, very concretely, what does this look like in your life? What does it mean for you To endure hardships for for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his church. What does it mean? Especially given our 21st century Western context. Many times we hear about people that are being persecuted, imprisoned, beaten, killed for the name of Jesus in far off lands, in countries where Christianity isn't accepted. You're not able to practice that. And so while I feel like we should use those as parameters when we talk about hardships, enduring hardships, there are those extremes, we can't just leave it out there. We have to bring it home to us. What does it mean for us? And I asked asked people, I called up people last night, and I said, what does this mean? When you hear about enduring hardships in this culture, what does that look like in your life? And I got several responses, and I want to share some of them with you. Many times, we endure hardships because of other people. Just like the person being beaten and in prison is receiving hardships at the hands of other people, many times we will receive hardship because of other people. Lindsay put herself in a position where she could have totally received hardship, criticism. Um, she could have been told off by Carrie. You're putting yourself in a situation to receive something from other people. One person uh, put it this way. When I'm sitting around the table at lunch at work, and somebody says, you know, gives a stinging criticism of something Christian based, what, in a sense, that's a hardship that I receive. And many times, it's when I speak up that it becomes a personal attack against me. Is it a hardship? Maybe not in the context of being beaten. But yet we need to see that that that's a hardship you'll face. If you're willing to speak out for Jesus and for his church, many times people will direct attention directly at you. And are you ready to embrace that? So that they have the chance to hear about Christ. It's not just enduring hardship for the sake of hardship. It's doing it for a purpose. Another person actually shared this. And I was a little bit surprised they have been meeting for a Bible study. Wednesday morning, 7 a.m., in one of the rooms at this work facility. Been doing it for a while now. Not on the clock, before work. And they were starting to, this company was starting to think of implementing a policy that said, no, no, no more Bible study. No more. And it didn't seem like a big deal to them, Because they can just go down the street to a Starbucks. But what do you do for those people that are out in the middle of nowhere? They work at a factory. And that's their only place to meet. Many times, there seems to be this this culture of including people. Unless you're a follower of Christ. So be aware. Sometimes it comes from other people. Sometimes... We impose it on ourselves in a good way. We want to endure hardship. My brother Chris Walker said uh, many times he envisions enduring hardship as just choosing against sin. Choosing against sin. You could choose for sin. You could indulge yourself. Whatever you're looking for, Maybe your needs aren't being met in a relationship or school's falling apart or, or, or work is tough. And so you enter in sin to find something. I want to I wanna have my needs met. And what my brother's saying is, there might be momentary fulfillment in that, but that's not your long-term strategy. If that's your long-term strategy, you're dead. You're a dead duck. So choose the hardship of not being fulfilled now. Endure that hardship. Choose it. Choose that hardship now for the sake of Jesus and his church. Do that. Impose that on yourself so that your needs can be met in a way that honors God. And a woman shared this. Do not listen to what they're telling you out there. Do not respond to hardships in the way that the world tells you to. They're going to tell you to eat. They're going to tell you to entertain yourself. They're going to tell you to go find a relationship. Don't do that. Seek God. Her word. seek God. Wait on God. And don't do what the culture wants from you. Impose that on yourself. Endure hardship. So when it does come time to share Jesus and invite people to church, you're ready. You're ready for that. Talk to a businessman. He said it's so difficult. Not for him personally, but the opportunities come so often. (laughs) To be able to cut corners to lie, to cheat. But yet he and his company are called to do it God's way. And so the hardship that he imposes on him and his staff is they're going to do it God's way. They're not going to cut corners. They're going to balance their priorities. And it's challenging because you look at all the people around you and they're not living the way you are. And so it's a self imposed, we want to endure hardships for the name of Jesus. And the, finally, when God chooses for you to endure hardship. Hebrews 12 talks about God and discipline. Reads this way Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, and I would add as daughters. For what son or daughter is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons, not true daughters. Goes on to say this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. There are times where people will impose hardship on you. There'll be times where you do that to yourself. And sometimes God will take you through a time of hardships to refine you, to mold you, to shape you. And now, very concretely, very personally, I want you to look at your own life. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. And I want you to identify one of these places. Are there people right now that are bringing hardship upon you? They're forcing upon you. Is that the boat you're in? How are you going to respond? I want to ask you, how are you going to respond to that that situation, that group of people? Maybe that's not the boat you're in. Maybe you're in the place of self-imposed hardship, I'll call it. Because you want to be a follower of Christ and you want to honor God with your life. And you don't want to live by the ways of the world. That's where Carrie's at. She's saying, I don't want to live like that. I want to live for God. And maybe that's the place some of you want to be. And it will take coming up afterwards and getting prayed for and confessing sin. You've taken the road out of, of having that temporary fulfillment instead of enduring hardships. And then there's the third piece. And this is where I would ask you, to bring other people that know you well. Does this seem like it's hardships coming from God? Invite other people. Ask them that question. Is this, is this coming from God? Is this something that he's, he's trying to work something out in me? Help the, have them help you answer that question. Many times, it, you perceive your hardships not producing fruit. But I want you in faith to trust that those hardships will produce food. Many times it's not as obvious as Lindsay and Carrie. But for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus, who's worthy, who is this Lord Almighty? Who is this King Almighty? Who is the King of glory? His name is Jesus. That's why you do it. Don't just do it. Because then it just becomes... Religion, it becomes practice, becomes a pillar in your life. Do it for Jesus, for his church. Will you pray with me? God, we want to honor you by helping as many people as possible become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our vision here. And God, we thank you that it's happening in, in lives as we just heard. A simple invitation by Lindsay, an acceptance by Carrie, and now you're working in Carrie's life. God, that's what we want to see happen. And get us to the point, God, where we're willing to endure hardship, like Paul, time and time again, because Jesus is worth it, and your church is worth it. Amen.